Welcome to HarperCollins Presents. This is Erin Wicks with HarperCollins. I recently spoke with Shane Snow, author of Smart Cuts, on sale September 9th, 2014. Shane is a co-founder of Contently, a startup connecting journalists and brands, and also writes for tech magazines like Wired. In the course of his writing and work, Shane has found trends that allow some companies and individuals to get ahead in business fast. These trends are not shortcuts, rather smart cuts, that turn traditional business paradigms on their heads and can show you how to conserve time and energy by doing smart work to achieve your goals. In Smart Cuts, Shane uses fascinating stories from the starts of modern legends like Jimmy Fallon and Skrillex to the political successes of Alexander the Great and the Cuban Revolution to make his points easily accessible, even to the least business savvy. Before we speak with him, let's listen to an excerpt from the intro of the audiobook, read by Shane. Pretend you're driving a car in the middle of a thunderstorm, and you happen upon three people on the side of the road. One of them is a frail old woman who looks on the verge of collapse. Another is a friend who once saved your life. And the other is the romantic interest of your dreams. And this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to meet him or her. You have only one other seat in the car. Who do you pick up? There's a good reason to choose any of the three. The old woman needs help. The friend deserves your payback. And clearly, a happy future with the man or woman of your dreams will have an enormous long-term impact on your life. So, who should you pick? The old woman, of course. Then give the car keys to your friend and stay behind with the romantic interest to wait for the bus. This dilemma is an exercise in lateral thinking. It's the kind of puzzle in which the most elegant solution is revealed only when you attack it sideways. New ideas emerge when you question the assumptions upon which a problem is based. In this case, it's that you can only help one person. In this book, I'm going to show you how overachievers throughout history have applied lateral thinking to success in a variety of fields and endeavors. In doing this, I plan to convince you that the fastest route to success is never traditional and that the conventions we grow up with can be hacked. And most important, I want to show you that anyone, not just billionaire entrepreneurs and professional mavericks, can speed up progress in business or life. Shane, thanks for sitting down with us today. Thank you. There are some interesting facts going around about you at the office. Um, I heard okay. I heard that, uh, just you know, throw you off your game as we get started here. Um, in high school, I believe you had an internet business that was breaking in so much money that it was, you were competing with your dad for his like engineering salary and your parents restricted you from the internet. It, it worried my parents a lot, yeah. <laughs> and then um, four years ago, you were in Hawaii and didn't even own shoes. And now today, you are writing for publications like Wired. You're embedded in the tech startup community. And perhaps most intriguing of all, you are the co-founder of Contently, a startup valued at over $30 million. So how did you get from Ben from the Internet in high school to um, founder of Contently today? Uh, Those are a lot of rumors, first of all. (laughs) Yes. Um, But I think in part, the one led to the other. When I was in high school and I was working on these Internet projects, uh, and my parents were worried because it was a new thing, and the question that they asked me repeatedly was, is this legal? Yes. And <clears throat> I always had this sort of chip on my shoulder after they they basically said, you need to learn the value of hard work too, which actually this ties in a lot with my book, the idea of working hard and smart. 
Um, they said, you need to learn the value of hard work too. So made me get a real job. And I had this bitterness because of that, that made me want to prove that I could build something on my own using technology. So what was their definition of a real job? And what and what was your internet business? <laughs> yeah. Was it legal? <laughs> it, it, it was legal. Uh, it was cheesy. So in the late 90s, there was this thing called fun pages, which were like greeting cards. So if it's your birthday, I might send you a link in email to a page that has dancing smiley faces that say happy birthday. Um, and so basically I made a bunch of those and made money off of essentially advertising. And those were the days when you got insane rates for ads on the internet. And so I started getting these checks for thousands of dollars uh, coming in as a 16-year-old. So that's what worried my parents. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of factors there. Um, but it was legal, but it was also very easy money for a 16-year-old to be making. And uh, they were worried. So my dad's an engineer, so he believes in the idea of leverage and thinking smart. And a lot of these things that I talk about in the book, he taught me a lot of those things. But they wanted me to not grow up a weenie, I guess. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so they, you know, I worked for the gas company. I drove pizza delivery. I worked building houses. Um, and I taught computer science classes, uh, you know, to other high schoolers in high school, actually. Um, my friend and I, who is my partner at Contently, we actually taught the C++ class because the teacher in high school couldn't teach uh, the sort of second year. Oh. Anyway, so so I still did a lot of computer stuff, but I kind of was not allowed to do internet businesses. So the second I turned 18 and moved out of the house, that's what I wanted to do. And and so what did you start out with as soon as that you had that freedom again? Uh, well, I started building websites for other businesses. So I went to college um, and I yeah built websites for the local businesses in college until the point when I realized that I was helping other people make their dreams happen and build their businesses that were largely online businesses and figured, why can't I do that myself? So I started some e-commerce companies. I sold uh, printing services for business cards and postcards. Uh, I actually started a website with a friend to sell horse saddles. So this was Idaho. Really? <laughs> Whoever thought of buying a saddle on the internet, apparently a lot of people. Um, so, you know, we made commissions by reselling saddles on the internet. Uh, so those were all of kind of my small ideas that built into bigger ideas um, that eventually led to Contently, which is a uh, you know, venture-funded startup. We have about 50 employees now and, uh, yeah, have raised over $11 million in funding and work with some of the biggest brands in the world. Um, but I feel like I made a, in a similar way to what I describe in the book, I guess, a progression in this idea of bigger or better businesses. I learned lots of lessons very quickly through things that worked and didn't work. Um, but throughout it all, I guess I was inspired from that early time in high school by this idea of you can build something yourself and you can do things unconventionally and that if people tell you you can't, maybe there's a good reason for your parents to teach you that kind of lesson. But uh, that motivated me to not ever let anyone tell me that I can't do something again. Now, I want to talk more about Contently, but first I want to know about the shoeless in Hawaii thing. Mm. Is that true? It is. Well, so there's this point where I I was finishing college and in Idaho, you know, miles away from where I grew up. And uh, I kind of freaked out, realized that no one else was into the things that I was into, technology and journalism. Kind of wanted to rethink my life and what I believed and what I wanted to do. So I moved to Hawaii and learned to surf and was super poor, still building websites for people um, and, uh, and just living like a really lean lifestyle, but very happy and, and kind of pondering life on a surfboard. So when I moved to New York to become a journalist, 
I got to New York and realized walking around the dirty streets of New York that I didn't, I only owned sandals. I didn't have any shoes to my name. And it's pretty disgusting at the end of the day when you are wearing sandals in New York City. True. Uh, so it's not like I couldn't afford shoes. I was pretty poor, like as college students tend to be, right? Uh, but uh, I just had forgotten about shoes because Hawaii was so wonderful. And so so then you were in New York. You're writing about tech startups. You're kind of embedding yourself in that community. Is that that's that right? Yep. And then where did the idea for Contently come from? And maybe maybe tell us a little bit about what Contently is. Sure. Uh, well, what Contently is is essentially a technology company that is building tools for the groups that have a stake in the future of media and journalism. So we build software for publishers, a lot of brand publishers of companies like Coca-Cola that want to tell stories on the internet, um, and also Huffington Post and Slate and Gawker and, and a lot of other publishers. And then we build free tools for journalists to help manage their careers. So uh, build your own website tool for your portfolio. The goal is to help journalists survive as freelancers, which more and more of us are. Uh, and then we connect those journalists that are freelancing to publishers that want to hire people in certain categories. Uh, so that's how we make money. Uh, so that's what Contently is. We've been growing like crazy. Um, how I guess the idea came about, I moved to New York to become a journalist. I went to journalism school at Columbia with the idea that I wanted to write about technology companies. Uh, I loved startups. I loved tech. I'd been doing tech. So I wanted to write about it. Uh, and I wanted to start a company of my own eventually. And the starting of my company of my own happened a lot quicker than I thought, just because as I got out of journalism school, all of my classmates essentially entered the job market as freelancers. So I got really interested in this idea of what happens when you as a creative person are treated as a variable cost by your employer. Uh, you know, you can still do the work online, telecommuting is possible, you can email in your stuff, you can work alone, that's how journalists work. But you no longer have a safety net, you don't have a salary, you don't have health benefits, you have to do your own sales, you have to be your own collector, you have to do your own taxes. So I was interested in that set of problems that have nothing to do with the craft of journalism. And uh, meanwhile, a friend of mine from back in high school who was the other tech geek that I had known, he uh, had this harebrained idea to start building a blog network and he needed to hire journalists and came to me asking for advice on sort of people to hire. And then we got to talking and thinking about, well, what if we could solve both these problems of people looking for talent that are higher caliber than you find on Craigslist or Odesk, where there's a lot of weirdos, um, and this group of people who are looking for work who are highly trained and talented. So that, that's the long pitch, I guess, to uh, how the company came about. There's really solving two people's problems uh, using the internet. Now, how did you come to write a book about everything you learned and putting together contently and just since you were in high school? Yeah. So I made a website for myself many years ago uh, with a bucket list of things I wanted to do. And a lot of them are silly, like watch all the episodes of the X-Files and, um, you know, meet Desmond from Lost and things like that. Uh, but one of the things on my list uh, that was a serious one is write a book. And so I'd been thinking about that. It had always been a goal. And I loved writing. I mean, throughout Contently, I still do a lot of writing for Wired Magazine and LinkedIn's influencer blog program and a bunch of those places. So I kind of fell into the book Smart Cuts because I had been trying to kill two birds with one stone with my writing. I was really interested in covering startups to learn what they did well so that we could incorporate that into Contently. Uh, but I'd been covering startups for a long time anyway, and that's what partially inspired me to, uh, you know, to co-found the company. So 
in the course of that reporting, I got really fascinated with this idea of superlatives. Uh, and I at one point made a list of kind of the best and fastest and youngest and brightest in all sorts of categories, starting with tech companies, fastest growing tech company, fastest company to a billion dollars, youngest billionaires. Then I started making the list longer, you know, youngest presidents, uh, youngest Nobel Prize winners, on and on and on. So I made this huge list of incredible people throughout history and started down this Wikipedia rabbit hole, essentially. I wanted to learn about these people and found that a lot of the same things that these tech companies do to sort of beat their peers or beat the norm uh, had a lot to do with what other superlatives in history had done, um, whether they're great world leaders or innovators or, you know, iconic artists. And so I was thinking a lot about that and starting to write about that and uh, kind of fell into meeting a, a wonderful agent named Jim Levine, uh, who put together a book proposal with me, and that's how we ended up at HarperCollins, much faster than I anticipated, actually. And one of the things I'm going to write about after the book comes out is the exact process of marketing that book proposal and marketing the book using the same principles that I write about in the book, which is very circular and meta, but, <laughs> but it's been uh, really fun and, and has helped in the writing process itself. So when did you start submitting your book proposal? Uh, it was early 2013. Oh, wow. Okay. So actually what happened, this is the silliest part, is uh, New Year's Resolution 2013, I looked at the calendar and saw that I was turning 30 in 2014 and knew that it takes a long time to write a book and said I should make a goal of crossing that off my list by 30. So I started thinking about it then, which is I feel like a really presumptuous thing to to decide to do. Um, and uh, I, I feel silly even saying it. But, uh, but I decided, okay, I'm going to set the goal to start exploring this. And uh, a couple of good friends of mine recommended that I talk to Jim. Uh, and so I went into him without a proposal, but just with these ideas of, you know, I've been thinking about these groups of superlative hacker types and, uh, you know, had been writing a lot about them. And he's a great guy. He's, uh, I mean, he's a wonderful agent um, and decided to sit down with me and put the book proposal together with me. So over the course of a couple of weeks, he almost acted as editor. I gave him several drafts over and over and over again, slowly fleshing out from bullets to outline to full proposal. And then he took it around to publishers. And uh, that process actually happened in, you know, only a few weeks. Uh, so I, I, I think the caveat is there was a lot of thinking that went into it beforehand. Um, but I certainly didn't, uh, didn't write the book and write the proposal and then shop it around and everyone loved it. It was an iterative process. Um, and went through a lot of changes in that upfront proposal writing process, which is actually one of the things I write about in the book, this idea of rapid feedback and uh, turning little failures into uh, ways to accelerate success. That's fascinating. <laughs> I like that. Um, so going on with uh, how the book is written, um, and you kind of touch on how you're building these superlative lists, um, but you kind of enter into all the points that you make using anecdotes from real life, from Skrillex to the Cuban Revolution. And how did you come up with this strategy? Where did you find these stories? I mean, one that I'm really thinking of is Jimmy Fallon's, uh, you know, first failed audition for SNL when he was 21. Yeah. So the approach for the how I put together the proposal in the end is I treated it like a series of magazine feature pitches. So there are nine chapters. I put together the different patterns that I'd seen in these superlative companies and people throughout history. Um, and uh, and I had questions about several things. So like Jimmy Fallon chapters about mentorship and the myths about mentorship um, and how he, I don't want to bl blow the cover on on the uh, <clears throat> the surprise, but 
how he used a counterintuitive thing about mentorship to accelerate his career and how his failed audition sort of helped in that process. So I put together each chapter was essentially a magazine pitch that I could pitch to one of the magazines I write for, like Wired. The elements of a good magazine pitch are, you know, what's the big idea? What's the access you have? Why now? Uh, and what's sort of the overarching narrative arc? And so I started with, you know, stories that I thought were really interesting. So like Jimmy Fallon's story. And, uh, and then basically worked on getting access. And I ended up getting access to his very first manager, who's the first person to sign him when he was just a kid. Um, he was 19 or 20 years old and uh, got access to her, had a really great interview. And so that became the basis for sort of the main narrative story for that chapter. But in that, I uh, basically looked into the academic research on mentorship and some of the ancillary things. So it's sort of this process of finding the great hook, the great story first, that would be the magazine hook, I guess. And then finding access and finding research to back that up, putting that together in a pitch. And I actually threw away many more stories and potential stories than I ended up getting just because of the access question or because they didn't quite tie into the uh, the theme. And, and actually halfway through the book, after the proposal, I ended up finding some even more interesting people and, and access that uh, some of the chapters changed a lot. Maybe you've already answered this, but, you know, you're debunking a lot of common misconceptions like the, the mentoring um, being, you know, always a good thing. How did these come to you? I think by nature as a journalist, I tend to think skeptically about a lot of things, especially in business. So when I was an undergrad, I actually studied business for my major kind of because as like a default. I'm, I'm glad now, uh, but I, I just sort of picked it. And uh, I joined the school newspaper about halfway through, and I loved that. I realized that this was my calling. I loved writing. So I ended up being the opinion editor, writing a lot of columns. A lot of my columns dealt with making fun of the business program to the chagrin of my own professors. We'd read these books that were sometimes awesome, sometimes really pompous, and like how I made it and why I'm so great. And so I was always a little bit skeptical about the hindsight of why people say they're successful. And so part of what I wanted to do with this book was to take a look at, I guess, the common conceptions we have about success and, uh, and see if research would bear out actually if they work or if these things that we talk about are urban myths. One of the big ones that people talk about a lot is that luck is the biggest factor in success. And yet you have people like Oprah who say that luck means nothing, that everything is about being prepared for opportunities. Uh, and so people get really up in arms about this topic. And uh, so I wanted to explore topics like that that have a big link to how we see success and how we motivate ourselves to work and to build businesses and uh, see if they're true. And so some of that, you know, anecdotes are a great way to get someone into uh, that kind of topic, you know, so stories are great. And, uh, you know, and that's, I think, what makes a book is uh, is that the stories are fun and about people that, you know, that we love and know about um, or sometimes don't. But I think the most important part to me is that there are things that hold us back from doing what we're capable of doing. And the only reason is because we've been telling ourselves these things for decades. So things like you have to pay your dues before you can do great things, uh, which is, so common in, in so many industries, right? If you want to be a lawyer or a banker or, you know, politics or even a, you know, a business person, I saw in my entrepreneurial career, these tech companies kind of give the finger to all of these things that they said, well, people say that this is the way it is. We're going to build a business based on the opposite of that and proving that that's not true. So I think that kind of attitude helps them beat the norm 
But then I, when I was looking at these other stories, I saw that actually the kinds of people who beat the norm routinely throughout history, whether it's the Cuban revolutionaries with 15 guys in the jungle being able to overthrow the country in a year, or the best and worst presidents in history, you look at the patterns in what they did to supersede expectations, and it's the same kind of thinking. They took rules that weren't really rules, and they broke them. I was going to ask you, how is your business book different than other business books? But it sounds like your business book is almost the antithesis of a lot of these kind of standard books, would you say? I'm hoping so. I mean, that's a flattering compliment. (laughs) At the same time, there's a lot of great business literature that's been written out there, and I nod to a lot of that in the book. Uh, My goal with the books is to get people to think a little bit differently and to stop accepting this idea that it should take so long to accomplish anything greater to make progress. So I think in that way, a lot of people hope for that idea, but I don't see a lot of uh, research-based business books that uh, really get at that. A lot of, like I said, a lot of business books are about kind of the strategy science or personal attributes that help you overcome obstacles, and those are great. But there's a lot of them, and I didn't feel like I personally had much to add as a young entrepreneur. But what I did have is uh, an inside look at companies that do these incredible things by kind of bucking at the norm. And uh, and as a journalist, I had the ability to get access to interesting stories. So that's that's I guess what I feel like I'm bringing to the business conversation. And I'm hoping that this is the kind of book that appeals to not just business people, as a lot of these stories apply to you know any kind of career as well, which all of us ideally have. Now, who are some of your business influences then, either books I've written or just generally people that you model what you want to do after? Yeah, there's a bunch of them. Uh, I was uh, thrilled that one of my uh, favorite business thinkers, Adam Grant, uh, actually read the book and wrote some nice things about it. Uh, He's the author of Give and Take, which is a book about how being a giver and a generous person in work helps you be more successful uh, or it helps you be less successful depending on the approach you take. So he kind of has this counterintuitive um, idea that is, I think, good for the world and he bears all of his ideas out in a lot of research and he helped mentor me a bit during the uh, the book writing process. Of course, I'm a fan of uh, counterintuitive writers like Malcolm Gladwell and Tim Ferriss. A lot of people have... Uh, strong opinions about uh, the writing that these guys come up with. But what I love is that they're able to provoke people to think differently. Um, so I was very inspired by those guys and uh, and got to meet both of them in the course of writing this, and they were helpful. I think, though, my current favorite counterintuitive business, so if you take the Venn diagram of counterintuitive ideas that are borne out by real research and business strategy, the guy in the middle of that is Mark Andreessen who's the uh, founder of Netscape, and uh, he runs a company called Andreessen Horowitz, uh, which is an investment company. So he's uh, this guy who does these rants on Twitter all the time about how the world needs to be different and how uh, especially likes to write about the journalism industry, and his big thing is that software will one day eat all of these industries in the world, and uh, that's been a big influence for me, seeing people like him uh, who ought to write a book. His... uh, Actually, his uh, business partner wrote a book for HarperCollins, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, which is a great book. Uh, and I'm totally rambling at this point. No, no, it's fine. No, keep uh, going. I love anyone who writes about uh, things from an angle of the way the world sees or has decided that the status quo should be uh, ought to be rethought. Basically, like, I think there's some danger in the everything you know is wrong 
approach just to sort of uh, be antagonistic. But I think that that kind of attitude is necessary if we want to make progress and if we want innovation. Because innovation always happens because of someone saying, hey, this rule that isn't really a rule, I'm going to see if I can break it. Well, I think that's um, a really good place to end. I just have one more question for you. I know you were just here in the studio recording your intro to your audiobook. So how did you find that experience? It was fun. It's, uh, I mean, I'm surrounded in a room made out of carpet. And yes. uh, I'm happy that an amazing voice actor is uh, reading the rest of the book. But the intro is in first person, and so I was glad to be able to deliver that myself. Well, thanks a lot, Shane. Thank you. Here's another excerpt from the audiobook, read by Eric Bergman. A strange thing has been happening in the United States for nearly 300 years. For some reason, our presidents are younger than our senators. The average president of the United States takes office at age 55. In contrast, U.S. senators start their terms in Congress, the most recent at the time of this writing, at an average of age 62. Members of the House of Representatives were 57. This is not a recent anomaly. Presidents have tended to be younger than Congress since the founding fathers died, and though a handful began the job as senior citizens, the average starting age has never crossed 60. These statistics are especially peculiar because of how much more difficult it is to become president than a senator. Terms in Senate are commonly seen as a step on the path to president, but even brand new senators holding their first federal office ever have been coming in at the average of 56 and 57 in recent years. Presidents get to the top before senators get in the door. Why? You've been listening to HarperCollins Presents, the bi-weekly podcast program from HarperCollins Publishers, where we give you access to some of our favorite authors. Today we spoke with Shane Snow, author of Smart Cuts, on sale September 9th, 2014, and listened to excerpts from the audiobook, read by the author and Eric Bergman. Please join us for more HarperCollins Presents podcasts, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio. Thank you for listening.